Welcome to the 68th A.W. Mellon Lectures in the Fine Arts. In this six-part lecture series, entitled End as Beginning, Chinese Art and Dynastic Time, art historian Wu Hong explores the narratives of Chinese art and their relationship to artistic production while reflecting on a series of questions. How did dynastic time emerge and permeate writings on traditional Chinese art? How did it enrich and redefine itself in specific historical contexts? How did it interact with temporalities in different historical, religious, and political systems? How did narratives based on dynastic time respond to and inspire artistic creation? In the second lecture, Reconfiguring the World, the First Emperor's Art Projects, delivered on April 7, 2019, Wu Hong introduces an alternative dynastic history of art that emerged in the 4th century BCE and then explores the relationship of the first emperor's various art projects, including the legendary Twelve Golden Men and the sculptures in his Lishan Necropolis to this historic narrative. Hello. Good afternoon. Uh, so today's uh, second lecture of the Mellon Lecture Series. Uh, I will talk a little bit about the last lecture. Last week, I explained the purpose of this lecture series through exploring the interrelationship between art practice and the contemporaneous discourse on art. I hope to understand how the history of Chinese art was constructed and narrated in its original cultural, social, political, and artistic context. I posited the most dominant narrative mode of Chinese art to be based on dynastic time and trace the onset of this narrative mode to some Confucian text. Oh, not this. Yeah. And trace uh, the, the, the first iteration of this uh, narrative mode to some Confucian text uh, on ritual affairs from the fourth century BCE. I then demonstrated parallels between this text and the contemporaneous artistic practice as exemplified by objects from King Cho's mausoleum from the Zhongshan Kingdom. That case study enabled me to uncover nascent dynastic history of art in textual production and to understand the logic underlying the diverse forms, materials, and visual effects of various objects found in a coherent archaeological context. Today's lecture will again start from the fourth century BCE but we will learn a different dynastic history of art, and we'll follow it to re-examine a series of monumental projects launched by the first emperor in the late third century BCE. So the first section from the nine tripods to the 12th golden man. The second narrative, second dynastic history of art, shares the three dynasties framework with the first one, 
promoted by the Confucians, but tells a different story. If the Confucian narrative focuses on ritual practice and the paraphernalia, the second narrative is political in nature, using a set of legendary bronze vessels to create a discourse on the legitimacy of political power. We find its earliest iteration in the fourth century text called the Spring and Autumn Annals with Zhuo's commentaries. In this text, the story is said to be related by a person from the seventh century BCE. But the tenor of the narrative reflects the heightening anxiety about political legitimacy around the time of the book's compilation, that is, fourth century BC. According to this text, in the year 605 BC, an ambitious lord of the southern state of Chu went on a military expedition near the capital of the Zhou which by then had been reduced to a puppet status and the increasingly threatened by regional lords' demands for political power. You can see there the Zhou in the middle was totally surrounded by these big regional powers. In this case, the true lord challenged the Zhou's authority by posing a rhetorical question. Could you tell me how large and heavy are the nine tripods? That's the question. This seemingly innocent inquiry aroused a famous speech from Wang Sun Man, a minister sent by the Zhou king to meet the troops outside the capital. Here is a part of the speech. I put it here. Very important text from early China. <clears throat> and it is a narrative you will see. The tripods doesn't matter, do, do not matter, virtue does. In the past, when the Xia dynasty was distinguished for its virtue, the distant regions put their things into pictures, and the nine provinces sent in copper as tribute. The tripods were cast to present those things. Hereby, a harmony was secured between the high and the low, and all enjoyed the blessing of heaven. When the virtue of Jie, the last king of the Xia dynasty, was all obscured, the tripods were transferred to the Shang dynasty. And for 600 years, the Shang enjoyed its ruling status. Finally, King Zhou of the Shang proved cruel and oppressive, and the tripods were transferred to the Zhou dynasty. When virtue is commendable and brilliant, those which are small will be heavy. When things come to be craft and decrepit, those are large will be light. Heaven bless intelligent virtue, and on this its favor rests. King Cheng of the Zhou fixed the tripod in the Zhou capital and divined that the Zhou dynasty should last for 30 reigns over 700 years. This is the Zhou's mandate from heaven. Though now the Zhou has lost its past glory, the decree of heaven is not yet changed. The weight of the tripod cannot yet be inquired about. Significantly, although Wang Sun Man, the speaker, 
made this speech to protect the Zhou's dynastic status. He nevertheless revealed that the Zhou was fated to keep the tripods only for a destined time span. His defense for the Zhou thus implied a question which would become increasingly urgent as time passed. Who would be the next owner of the tripods? As a struggle for political dominance between regional hegemons intensified towards the third century BCE, two answers to these questions emerged. One claiming the only God, the only gods and spirits could know the country's future. The other asserting that matter could be settled only by military might. The second position was represented by the Qin, a kingdom on the western periphery, which was rapidly becoming a major contender for dynastic status. We can see Qin is here. This, uh, yeah, this uh, really in the west. That's one. The Qin's prime minister Zhang Yi proposed to attack two cities in central China in 290 BCE. He schemed that once the conquest is done, our army will reach the outskirts of the Zhou capital. The Zhou's only way to survive would be to surrender the secret nine tripods and other precious symbols. With the tripods in our control, official maps and documents in our possession, and the Zhou king himself as hostage, the Qin then uh, can thereby give orders to all under heaven, and no one would dare to disobey. Zhang Yi's plan was not immediately realized. The Qin was only able to sack the Zhou capital 35 years later, in 256 BCE. Different stories emerged to account for the whereabouts of the nine tripod after this event. Some reported that the Qin seized them as planned. Others said, with the Zhou's fall, the divine objects vanished on their own. A third version, which later became a favorite subject of Han Dynasty pictorial art, as we see here, relates that when the first emperor unified the country and established the Qin Dynasty in 221 BCE, the tripod exposed themselves momentarily in a river. That's a river in the middle. You'll see the pyramid, uh, that's the river. They're both in it. So the tripod momentarily emerged. The first emperor was overjoyed and sent several thousand men to seek the divine object. The men had secured the tripod with ropes and were about to haul them out when a dragon suddenly appeared and bit the ropes to pieces. The tripod vanished, never to appear again. Uh, so that certainly is a slightly some invented by someone who, who didn't really like the first emperor because, <laughs> because the tripod emerged but then disappeared. As revealed by these tales, 
from its inception in the fourth century BCE, the legend of the nine tripod had a fatalistic, even apocalyptic undertone. As it always implied the object's eventual disappearance when the period of the three dynasties finally ended. Even Wang Sun Man, in his fierce defense of the Zhou's mandate, predicted its eventual fall and hence the loss of the nine tripods. The confusions surrounding the tripods whereabouts after 256 BCE further mirrored the historical rupture, which disrupted the smooth dynastic transition related in the tripod myths. Indeed, when Ying Zheng, the king of Qin and the future first emperor, finally defeated the last of the rival kingdoms in 221 BCE, he didn't consider himself a successor of the Zhou. During a major court conference that year, he demanded an imperial title, which would set him apart from all previous rulers of China. Responding to his request, the three top ministers, the Chancellor Wang Wan, the Imperial Secretary Feng Jie, and the Chief Justice Li Si, bypassed the entire of the three dynasties to find a reference in the remote legendary eras of the three august rulers and the five emperors called San Huang and Wu Di, entirely fictional, entirely legendary, and proposed a title of Tai Huang, or Supreme August, to be Ying Zheng's imperial destination. Based on this proposal, Ying Zheng made the final decision. As a founder of the new dynasty, uh, henceforth, he should be called Huang Di, August Emperor, which combines the title of the three August rulers and the five emperors. He made that famous announcement, I'm Shi Huangdi, the first August Emperor, and my successors will be titled by number from the second and the third to the ten thousands, transmitting the imperial position down to infinity. What we find here is a radical reconceptualization of dynastic time. Instead of succeeding each other in a linear pattern as exemplified by the three dynasties in the Confucian vision, the Qin represents a new kinds of dynasty, which has no immediate past, but projects itself forward into an infinite future. This historical conception is personally embodied by the first emperor. By calling himself Shi, or the first, he explicitly identified himself as the origin. Consequently, Chinese history before him had to be reimagined and indeed refashioned as nothing but a void. This is perhaps the real reason why he ordered to have all historical texts 
about states other than the Qin physically destroyed. So we can see this later illustration showing uh, burning books here and basically burying Confucian scholars. The same destructive tendency is also found in his art and the architectural projects in which destruction was taken as the condition of construction. So now we can move to his art and, uh, uh, and uh, architecture project, both recorded uh, in text and also excavated through archeology. span One of these projects is called the Palaces of the Six Formal Kingdoms. The Han historian Sima Qian described this project in his historical records, Shi Ji, in these words. Each time the Qin had conquered a state, a replica of its palace was built on the northern bank of the Wei River, overlooking the river. While eastward from Yongmen to the Jing and Wei rivers in a series of courts, wooden avenues, and pavilions were kept the beautiful women and musical instruments captured from different states. Thus, not only were beautiful women and abundant wealth brought in from the conquered kingdoms, but their palaces were also copied in the Qing capital. A crucial aspect of this architecture project was its timing and duration. Whenever a rival kingdom was defeated and its capital raised, its palace was transplanted to the Qin capital Xianyang. When the last rival kingdom disappeared from China's map, the construction of the palaces of the six formal kingdoms was automatically completed. According to Chinese archaeologists, the foundations of these palaces have been found on either side of the Xianyang Palace, the first emperor's stronghold. The layout of construction process of the palatial complex thus both mirrored the founding of the new dynasty, which united previously fragmented parts of China under the first emperor. The same logic of a synchronized destruction and construction was also manifested in a group of sculpture known as the 12th Golden Man. Arguably the first emperor's most important art project. Again, historian uh, Sima Qian recorded their creation, basically in 220 BCE, after the emperor had just unified China, I quote, all the weapons in the country were collected and brought to the capital Xianyang. They were melted down to make the 12 golden men. These bronze figures, each of which, uh, each of which weighed a thousand carats, were placed in front of the stronghold. The timing of these monumental bronze sculptures was again crucial. Fashioned immediately after the destruction of the rival kingdoms and thus succeeding the palaces of the six formal kingdoms, at least conceptually, 
they commemorated an epic historical moment, the official beginning of the Qin Dynasty. Sima Qian listed the making of the 12 golden men among other unification measures that the first emperor announced the day he assumed the imperial title, including the standardization of laws and regulations, weights and measures, written characters, and the length of carriage axles. The implication of these statues was thus unmistakable. The country had been pacified and no further wars were necessary. The former six kingdoms had been destroyed and assimilated into the new political unity. Their weapons were melted down to make this set of new monuments. Standing along the imperial way leading to the throne hall, these giant sculptures symbolize the transformation of a divided country into a single political unity. In fact, this group of monumental status, statues must have reminded people then of the nine tripods, which were also said to have been made of bronze materials collected from different parts of the country. But in the Qing case, the visual signifier of its dynastic status was no longer a set of ritual vessels, but monumental sculptures of human figures. According to textual records, the last of these statues were destroyed in 384 CE. During the 600 years between their creation and the final demolition, stories of the 12 golden men circulated and yield contradictory information about their size, weight, and uh, intention. The recorded weight of each statue, for example, varies significantly from 240,000 to 340,000 jin, about 54.4 to 90.6 tons. Since none of these records can be verified, and little direct evidence exists to allow speculation on their precise forms, scholars have focused instead on the possible stylistic origins or inspirations for these statues. Noticing the absence of large freestanding sculptures in preaching China, scholars like Lucas Nico have argued that the 12 golden man must have been inspired by foreign precedents. Most specifically, they suggest that following the eastward campaign of Alexander the Great in the fourth century, Greek art was brought into present day Afghanistan, Uzbekistan, and Tajikistan in the fourth century BCE and influenced artistic practice further east. While this very interesting hypothesis is now yet universally embraced by scholars, it is crucial here to see the 12 golden men and the palaces of the six formal kingdoms are too closely related art and architecture project 
with a shared temporality and symbolism. Equally important, both projects were related to a new narrative of artistic creation in tandem with the founding of the Qin Dynasty. Instead of reconstructing a history of ritual art from the bygone three dynasties, this narrative starts with the obliteration of the past, destruction of the past, symbolized by the disappearance of the nine tripods and the destruction of the original palaces of the former six kingdoms. Only when the past was erased could new art forms be created and new stories about them be told. The 12 Golden Men exemplify one such new forms and one such narrative. We turn now to another magnet of new art forms and narratives, which is, you know, the first emperor's mausoleum, known in Chinese history as a Li Shan necropolis, Li Shan Li. So the second part about this necropolis. According to Sima Qian, the first emperor began building this necropolis the very day he mounted the throne, at the exact moment when he ordered the casting of the 12 golden men to celebrate his coronation. We should thus consider the two as a parallel project under the same patronage. This realization cautions us against a modern classification, which associates these two projects with the separate spheres of public and private endeavors. Abandoned evidence challenges this classification, so people may think that uh, this one is more private because it's his tomb, the other is more public because that's palace in public space. But abandoned evidence challenges this uh, classification. Most obviously, the first comprehensive history of the Qin Dynasty was actually written as the first emperor's biography, entitled as such. This history doesn't distinguish state and personal affairs. The emperor's words were policies, and his personal desires mobilized huge public projects. The construction of the necropolis was just such a project. It employed, according to texts, more than 700,000 men from all over the country, even from foreign lands. One can also easily imagine the spectacle generated by the making of the enormous underground armies and other life-size statues all to be buried in the mausoleum. Some of these statues have been traveling around the world in blockbuster exhibitions. Everywhere they go, they evoke amazement and awe. The close encounter with the individual statues has also inspired detailed stylistic and technical studies. Larger contexts and narratives are easily forgotten, however. For one thing, the underground army only formed a fraction of the Li Shan necropolis. So we see here, 
So this is only part of this underground army here. This entire underground army actually is here. It's part of the much larger complex. What was the overall structure of the mausoleum complex? How was it related to the emperor's desire to create an everlasting dynasty? Did the concept of Shi or origin contribute to its design? How do we comprehend its monumentality as both encompassing state and personal ideologies? It is certainly impossible to fully address these questions in a single lecture, but these are the kind of issues I will contemplate in the rest of this talk. Let's start from the necropolis general structure. Through reviewing current archaeological evidence till, I would say, 2019. So I will give you a very brief, condensed summary. The core of the entire necropolis was a funerary park called the Lingyuan, about one kilometer wide and two kilometers long. That is uh, the middle part, is funerary. It was surrounded by double walls and centered on a pyramid-shaped tumulus erected about, about, above the first emperor's grave. Here is uh, the tumulus. These essential features divide the whole necropolis into four zones. So the first zone is the tumulus and the grave, the number one there. The second is the space surrounding the tumulus inside the inner wall, number two. The third is the area between the inner and outer walls. And the fourth one is the space outside the wall, funerary park. The emperor's grave occupied the southern half of the central enclosure. It has not been excavated, but close to 20 underground timber structures have been found on all sides of the tumulus. One such structure yielded a set of two miniature bronze chariots inlaid with gold and silver. It is the only such object to have been found in the necropolis. In the second zone within the inner wall, a magnificent hall, number one, originally stood north of the tumulus. Further to the north, the yard was divided into east and west sections. Ten rows of courtyard houses in the west section, number two, were likely used to preparing, for preparing the monthly grave sacrifices. Opposite to them, the east section, number three, contained many small and middle-sized tombs, possibly belonging to the emperor's consorts. Underground structures and storage pits have also been found in this zone. In one of them, located, located southwest of the tumulus, that number four there, excavators have found 12 life-size terracotta figures representing civil officials and the charioteers in attendance. So in the third zone, between the two walls of the funerary park, the area to the east and west of the tumulus 
are especially rich in archaeological deposits. In the west section, two adjacent underground structures yielded two groups of different terracotta figures. One of them was that number one was an L-shaped underground stable containing several hundred horses slain before burial, as well as clay statues of stable administrators of different ranks. Immediately north was an underground zoo, number two, comprised of 51 individual pieces in three rows. The middle row contained the real animals and birds, supposedly taken care of by the clay zookeepers in the flanking rows. More terracotta figures came from the east side of the tumblers. These include 30-plus so-called acrobats in an 80-meter-long underground trench, number three. All wearing short skirts, some of them have bare muscular torsos and are making dramatic gestures. About 35 meters north from this acrobat pit is a huge rectangular underground structure, number four which contained 87 sets of stone armor, stone armors, 43 stone helmets, and several sets of stone harnesses. No convincing theory has been pro proposed to explain why they were fashioned specifically from stone. In the fourth zone, that encompasses the broad area surrounding the funerary park, Archaeologists have found four groups of terracotta sculptures, as well as many human and animal burials. About 350 meters east of the funerary park lay 17 tombs of a considerable size, that's number one. Based on Sima Qian's records, scholars have suggested that the deceased were likely to be the princes and ministers who were executed in 208 BCE, after the death of the first emperor. Buried in front of the emperor's tomb in a street row, this man seems to continue to serve their master in the afterlife. I hope you can see their position. It's very much in front of this funerary uh, park in a street row. Next to these tombs of the nobility lay another huge underground stable, number two, consisting of 98 pits in three rows. Terracotta grooms and the real horses were installed in these pits. Horses were buried in standing position with their legs secured in holes. The accompanying pottery vessels indicate the sources of food and water, as if these animals were being fed in the netherworld. A second underground structure located 1.5 kilometers to the north near a marshland, number three, yielded 15 clay figures and 46 bronze birds of various kinds. The unique content of this peat suggests that it simulated a royal garden. The uni um, to the west side of the funerary park, 
almost symmetrical with the tomb of the nobility on the east side. We are talking about jump this side here, on the west side of Funi Park. Almost like uh, you can see here, the tombs of nobility is about that almost symmetrical, right? Uh, lay the burials of uh, numerous convicts, number four there, some of whom have been executed or buried alive. Finally, about uh, 1.5 kilometers due east from the Funeral Park is the famous underground army, number five, consisting of some 8,000 terracotta warriors and horses in three underground timber structures. A dominant opinion is that the three pits and the unfinished pit four together replicated the Qin Imperial Guard which consisted of headquarters and three branches. According to this interpretation, the largest military formation in Pit One imitated the right army, constituted mainly by infantry squad, punctuated by battle chariots. The regiment in the smaller Pit Two, possibly a replica of the left army of the Imperial Guard, was a unit of war chariot and cavalry. P3, the smallest of the four, imitated a military command post in which the chariot of the commander-in-chief was flanked by 68 of officers stationed inside rooms. In addition to their general lifelikeness, the sculptures show a clear emphasis on military ranks, as indicated by the figures, uniforms, hairstyles, and postures. Taken as a whole, the archaeological evidence show a bipartite structure of the Lishan necropolis. The walled funerary park mirrored the first emperor's forbidden city, with the area within the inner wall as his private domain. The broad area surrounding the park appears as a replica of the Qin Empire under the first emperor's rule comprised of ministers, military forces, and slaves. This general understanding of the necropolis symbolism leads us to consider the means of representation. How was such a symbolic meaning constructed and delivered through individual statues, sculptures? To answer this question, we need to think about the materiality and scale of the sculptures. The two issues which have not attracted much attention in past studies of this great necropolis. I hope to demonstrate that these two aspects, namely materiality, material, and scale, are crucial to understanding Qin visual and material culture. I will pay particular attention to the set of bronze chariots, a true marvel in ancient art, not just in China, but anywhere in the world. This discussion will finally focus on the empty center within this system of representation and the concept of dynastic subjectivity it implies. To begin with, <clears throat> sculptures 
in the Lishan necropolis are neither uniform in material nor standardized in proportion. Although most are terracotta, other materials such as stone, bronze, and the precious metals were used to make specific works at specific locations. The posthumous kingdom of the first emperor also consisted not just of manufactured images, but also of real people, animals, and birds, and the actual weapons and chariots. We must take these components into consideration in thinking about the necropolis system of representation. In terms of scale, the sculptures range from miniatures to larger-than-life statues. Is there a pattern underlying such variations in size and materials? What is the possible rationale for such pattern if there is one? My general responses to these questions can be summarized as, as follows. The design of the necropolis and its sculptures was based on two principles, the life size and the miniature. The life size principle governs the conceptualization of the necropolis as a whole. The miniature principle pertains only to the immediate vicinity of the emperor's grave, as represented by the bronze chariots. The life-size principle was manifested through sacrificed humans and animals, as well as the full-scale clay sculptures, which together transformed the Nextropolis into a replica of the Qin Empire. The exquisitely manufactured and decorated miniature bronze chariots, on the other hand, were prepared for the first emperor's invisible soul. Within this general system, detailed adjustments were made for specific purposes. For example, although I have adopted the words life-size to describe the terracotta figures from the necropolis, a closer look at these sizes reveals that, in fact, these figures do not faithfully imitate the real people's height and that the disparities follow certain patterns. The majority of the underground figures, including the entire underground army and the statue of civil officials and the administrators within the funerary park are about 170, uh, 175 centimeters in average. Some 10 centimeters taller than the average height of Qin man, Qin dynasty man. In making these clay figures, the sculptors seem to have followed the general approach to slightly magnify their physique to enhance their visual appearance. But because the difference in dimension between the sculpture and their models are subtle, even unnoticeable from a distance, such manipulation of size doesn't migrate the, migrate the perception that the sculptures are exact replicas of imperial officers and soldiers. 
A different strategy was used in representing stable boys and zookeepers, whose images are strong conversions of real human beings' figures. Portrayed in a frozen kneeling posture devoid of movement, they wear plain clothes and no headgear. Measuring about 60 to 65 centimeters tall in this position, the figures should be about 1.2 to 1.3 meters if standing up, significantly below the estimated average height of 1.64 meters for Qin men. Thus, while their physical appearance remained unfailingly naturalistic, their reduced size accentuates their lower social status. What we find here is that while the Lishan necropolis, including its human burials and the terracotta statues, was unified by the life-size principle to imitate reality, this principle was also deliberately compromised to hide an internal social hierarchy. It is also significant that in this posthumous reality, those who were most closely associated with the first emperor, including his consort and the courtiers, were represented by human sacrifices. Whereas those performing generic governmental and military roles were representing, represented by clay statues. People often ask why the first emperor drastically increased the size of tomb figurines, which had all been miniatures before the Qin. Those from North China were especially tiny, mostly measuring less than 10 centimeters tall. They certainly become very big. My answer is that this change was brought about by the emperor's vision of his mausoleum as a self-sustaining version of the world. For this purpose, the line between artificial images and the real beings and things was intentionally blurred. The same vision must have also motivated the heightened naturalism in, of the sculptures. How then do we explain the two bronze chariots? Several features separate them from the rest of the sculpture works in the necropolis. The first is their unique size. After the chariots were painstakingly restored, people were surprised to notice their precise half-size dimensions. For example, the wheels of chair number one measure 66.7 centimeters in diameter. Those of a real Qin chariot was 134 to 136 centimeters in diameter, exactly double the bronze wheels. The bronze horses on this chariot measure around 110 centimeters in length. The 32 terracotta horses from pit number one of the underground army are about 220 centimeters long, again double the bronze ones. These comparisons prove that the bronze chariots, along with their drivers and horses, were deliberately made as exact half-size representations. In terms of material, the bronze chariots 
are inlaid with shining gold and silver to a dazzling effect. And here is just one detail showing the gold inlays everywhere. It's hard to see, but actually everywhere there are a lot of gold and silver. The amount of precious metals used is staggering. Even on this chariot, chariot number one, which represents a canopied vehicle preceding the principal sedan, used over three kilograms of gold and four kilograms of silver. But the chariots are still more amazing in their construction method. Unlike the terracotta soldiers, which are all modeled as a single piece sculptures, each bronze chariot is comprised of numerous individual parts made independently and then assembled together. So here you can see the, the crossbow or something is entirely separate, then just like installation, then put together. Um, there may be some other pictures, like uh, these, uh, just so you can see each part is an uh, individual one. Uh, do I have another one? Yes, that's a shield. All miniature, all miniature. This, not only do uh, these bronze imitate the overall shape of uh, two real, bronze, uh, real chari chariots, but their construction process also replicate the, the whole uh, production of uh, real chariots. The sculptors developed a variety of complex methods to copy two wooden vehicles uh, and their drivers in this way. Chair number two, for example, renders with amazing accuracy a fully equipped wagon comprised of uh, 3,462 segments, all shrinken to half size. I don't have time to show you a lot of picture, but just to give you a part of it, you get this idea, just basically about the horse. So first you see the horse was made. It's entirely like an animal. Then the harnesses, other parts are made entirely separately. And here's some detail, like the bits is itself consists of more than 40 pieces. And even more, just the head, just, just it's really mind-boggling a little bit. So it's very, very difficult. It's mind-boggling to imagine how all these segments, some as tiny as one centimeter long, could have been reduced uniformly with unfailing precision, cast, and inlaid separately, and then fitted together perfectly. I have asked a number of historians of ancient science about this, but still await a satisfactory answer. If any of you know how they made it, <laughs> please tell me. <laughs> Just imagine more than 3,000 pieces. Each is shrunk to half size and put together so beautifully. Scholars believe that with its extravagant construction and uh, decoration, the second chariot represents the first emperor's private sleeping wagon, called Wang Liangche in Chinese text. But they are puzzled by the absence of a sitter inside the vehicle. I would suggest that the non-appearance of the passenger, in fact, provides a valuable clue to speculate on the ritual function of the two chariots and in turn to uncover the reason for their miniature form. 
Like many peoples around the world, the ancient Chinese believed in the existence of an autonomous soul as the source of human life and intelligence, which would become a disembodied, formless spirit after a person died. The ancient Chinese imagined the plasma soul as an invisible miniature and consequently created numerous miniature objects, architecture models, and vehicles to bring comfort to the soul or guide it to heaven. Ancient ritual prescriptions instruct that during the funeral ceremonies, the departing soul of the dead should be conveyed to the graveyard by an empty soul carriage called a huncho. Abandoned pictures in the Han Dynasty tombs illustrate such processions, validating the textual instructions. Other images and actual chariots found in Han tombs reveal another aspect of this belief, that after the burial, the soul carriage would serve the additional role to transporting, of transporting the posthumous soul to the immortal land. Carriages entrusted with the second function were always oriented towards outside of a tomb, as if they were about to leave the burial with the deceased soul. This position was shared by the two bronze chariots in the Lishan necropolis. A drawing in the excavation report shows that the underground chamber that stored them was attached to a ramp which extends eastward to the unexcavated area beneath the tomb mound. In the chamber, the chariots were oriented westward, away from the first emperor's grave. It is very likely, therefore, that the roofed wagon was the emperor's soul carriage, stationed next to his grave to transport his soul beyond the mortal world. While the invisible soul was a shared belief in ancient Chinese culture, the concept of in invisibility had a specific political significance to the first emperor, who was a diligent student and practitioner of a legalist doctrine. Legalism is a school of political philosophy developed in preaching times. All of its teachings are centered on how to strengthen the state and how to increase the ruler's control over his subjects. The, representatives, uh, the representative of the school was Han Fei, a man whom the first emperor admired and actually met personally before he ascended the throne. Han Fei's essay called The Way of the Ruler must have impressed him a lot. Uh, this essay called The Way of the Ruler includes this passage, very interesting one. The way of the ruler lies in what cannot be seen. Its function in what cannot be known. Be empty, still, and idle, and from your place of darkness, observe the defects of others. See, but do not appear to see. Listen, but do not seem to listen. No, but do not let it be known that you know. Hide your tracks, conceal your sources, so that your subordinates cannot trace the springs of your action. 
discard wisdom and forceful ability so that your subordinates cannot guess what you're about. So the ideal ruler, according to Han Fei, is that someone who is, I quote, so still he seems to dwell nowhere at all, so empty no one can seek him out, unquote. Ancient modern historians all agree that the first emperor internalized the legalist ideology in his views of history and politics. We should thus ask how this ideology, in particular its notion of invisibility, was manifested in the design of his palaces and the necropolis, which formed the twin centers in the capital area across the Huan River. This reflection leads us to decipher the power structure inherent in the architecture and the representational systems engineered by the first emperor, in which an empty center controlled tangible artifacts and structures. Dwelling deep inside the Xianyang Palace, the emperor concealed his traces and surrounded himself with an aura of a mystery. The 12 golden men lined up in front of throne hall, magnified his power by simultaneously exhibiting and concealing, concealing it. The same logic is seen in the Li Shan necropolis, where all architectural structures, sculpture works, and the secondary burials function as the frames for the invisible soul of the emperor to conceal his secretive power and hence enhance it. In this system, the 12 golden men and the two bronze chariots were directly juxtaposed with this invisible center. Such close proximity explains why they both employed precious materials and the most advanced technology at the time. Their vastly different sizes further demonstrated the emperor's intention to control the de destiny of the newly created dynasty. The giant 12 golden men were political monuments celebrating the creation of the Qin Empire. The miniature chariots ensured the emperor's immortality beyond death and hence the infinity of his political legacy. It is in this sense I conceive the empty center as the seat of a dynastic subjectivity, an embodiment of the first emperor's will and agency in creating a new order in Chinese history and art history. Designed to last forever, this order revealed a new concept of dynastic time, but as I will discuss in the next lecture, this uh, imperial ambition was uh, doomed to fail in a mere 15 years, inaugurating yet another concept of dynastic time, as well as new kinds of artworks. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for coming. This has been a National Gallery of Art production.